Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay, and with me here is my co-host, Tom Young. Each episode, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history, and this episode will feature two events from April 23rd to April 29th. We'll also be chatting about some of the hot topics in today's sports while drinking some nice cold beers, including the Professor Booty from uh, Lansdale's own Brown Guys Brewing Company, Lansdale, PA. Professor Booty. First time I've seen it, what originally gravitated me towards it was the can. It was really cool looking. Got this stereo looking thing on it with a guy in a Where's Waldo type outfit going. Just saw the word professor. I didn't see the booty part. I mean, that's just funny now that I see it. I would have picked it for the name. But overall, quality beer. I'm Team Booty, so I'm here for it. Hey, All right, Tom, it's been a few weeks. We've, uh, we obviously scheduling issues and this and that and computer issues and all this fun stuff. Yeah, technology is always supposed to help us, but it sometimes <laughs> gets in the way. Yeah, it's a real pain. Uh, <laughs> but Tom, I haven't heard a fun fact in a while. What do you got for us? Thankfully, we haven't recorded in this long, but the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs won a playoff series was in 2004 against the Ottawa Senators in a seven-game series in the first round of the playoffs. We're now in 2023. Been that long, Brian. Do you have any idea about that one? I did because it has been 13 years since the Buffalo Sabres have made the playoffs, and even they have won a playoff series more recently than the Toronto Maple Leafs. Which is sad for such like a storied franchise. I mean, I, maybe it's not. not sad from my perspective <laughs> or yours, but for their fan base, sure. And they're also, just to add on to it, they're 0-10 in series-clinching games since 2018. Wow, 0-10? Yeah, so even, I mean, last uh, year they were up 3-1 to one against the Lightning. And I guess that makes sense, yeah. Ended up losing. Similar situation this year. They're up 3-1 currently. An amazing comeback win yesterday by them. They were down 4-1 to one heading into the third period. Hmm. Put up three goals in the third and then scored in overtime. They're up 3-1 this series, headed home for Game 5 in Toronto. I guess we'll see. I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the NHL playoffs. I will say it's been a, kind of, it's been a while since I've watched any hockey, but I was back home. Two weeks ago, visiting my family up in Western New York, and we decided to throw on some Sabres games because, like, they were still in theory alive. They still had a chance. Yeah, on the outside looking in. But let me tell you, it's the most fun I've, the most fun I've seen a Sabres team look in a very long time. There's just so much energy on that team, and Devin Levi just seems like he really has the potential to be a phenomenal goalie. So he's uh, out of what Northeastern University? Yeah, Northeastern. He was part college? of the trade. The Sam Reinhardt deal when the Sabres traded Sam Reinhardt to Florida. Yeah, from the Panthers. Yes, they brought in a draft pick that I believe they picked up some young guy that they're happy with, and then Devin Levi was part of that as well. Which makes sense given they had Sergei Burbowski signed to that long deal, yet Spencer Knight. Yeah, and he was to. still, and Levi was, was first still round pick. a few years off. So um, really cool to see. I'm very excited to see what happens with, with that team. And though some of those young pieces, they play with a lot of energy, a lot of speed. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited at Need to figure out a way to watch more games this year. Seems like you guys have a real good stud coming up there with Tage Thompson. Uh, I feel he, like he's finally come into his own. He yeah. he, he broke 50 goals this year, right? No. no I thought no. he was close, uh, wasn't he? Um, I don't, I'm not even sure he got the 40. He was close, but I don't remember exactly what it is. Let me see. Tage Thompson. He had 47. So he was okay, close. Right so yeah, there. I knew he was right under one of those thresholds, but yeah. 47, and that was he got hurt a couple times. The kid's 25 years old, 6'6", 220, plays fast, shoots hard. Um, he just really um, seems to be a really good player, a lot coming together with him. Dylan Cousins has really put it together this year, too, I believe. Yes, Dylan Cousins looked really good this year. Um, Owen Power, 
So Al- him and Rasmus Dahlin finally coming yeah. with Dahlin coming into his own after Dahlin's taken a while. Um, but adjusting to that game from coming from Sweden, yeah, and takes I think a little bit. And a lot of you know, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of like stress that comes with. I imagine being the number one overall pick. That I mean, Owen's game translates better because he was also obviously number one, but he kind of can be a better stay-at-home defenseman, even though he does have a lot of puck moving and offensive ability. Dahlin was definitely more of just he's really been an an offensive defenseman so it's you know there's a lot of exciting stuff going on on that team alex tuck has been huge coming over from vegas in the yeah, eichel trade jack eichel trade how about yeah. that eichel finally getting his first playoff experience here with the vegas knights and they're up 3-1 against the winnipeg jets looking to close it out at home yeah i like don't know how to feel about that whole situation just because like there's so much he said she said with the whole way eichel left um buffalo and you know left us hanging and the fact that he was the consolation in the mcdavid um lottery and all that stuff I not a know. bad second pick. No, not at all. He was cool for Connor us. McDavid. Yeah, he was he was pretty solid for us. It's just I think everyone was like, especially because the Sabres had the best chance of getting McDavid that year. And obviously. Naturally, the Oilers somehow con- got the first yeah, overall pick Conveniently, again. Edmonton got another number one overall pick. After, I know Nugent Hopkins, I believe he was a number one overall pick. Yakupov. Yeah, I'm saying now Yakupov, who's back now, probably playing in Russia somewhere. Yeah, he was. A I forget where Drysaitel was, but he was another top pick. If I, uh, he if was. I believe. Yeah. Let's see. Just time after time, they've just had top picks. They had like out. four in six years or something like that. It yeah, was, I was like Everly might have been up there too. Jordan Everly. Like that. Um, I don't actually know because I know they've had they had a quite a few and it was just really frustrating. So Taylor Hall in 2010. That's right. He was the first one. Hopkins in 11, Yakupov in 12, and then McDavid in 15. Okay. So literally th- three years in a row. And then a thirteen fourteen they didn't get it, and then McDavid. That's that been nice. Yeah, right. Look how, but yeah, look how well it's panned out for them. Yeah, they're in a tough series right now with the LA Kings two two going back to Edmonton. Yeah, hey, I mean, I guess we'll see. Playoff hockey personally is my favorite time of year. Just the games they get ramped up to another intensity that you don't see yeah, during the regular season. I agree, and it's just it's a much different game more physical it's not your six to four game like you see in the regular season much more grinded out two to one three to one victories a lot of overtime games where you're just sitting on the edge of your seat even if you're not a fan of the teams that are playing just becomes must watch in my opinion yeah it's physically it just it's, it it really is ramped up a notch like you said the physicality and just the level of play really takes a whole different whole different leap at that point and i probably should watch more but I find it hard to really watch a ton of sports if I'm not super involved with one of the teams in it. So, like, I love baseball, but you're not going to catch me sitting down watching most baseball games unless the Phillies are played. Fo- football is my one exception, I'd say. You watch any football game? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so, but that might also just be from, because from a fantasy perspective, I usually have two or three teams running. So like, Right, that's uh, why I love impact. Red Zone. Yeah. You just throw Red Zone on and you get every, every highlight you need. Yes, sir. Speaking of football, big news coming out of the AFC East uh, yesterday. Aaron Rodgers heading to the Jets. I know that like has that was up in the air there for a while, and seemed like it was a foregone conclusion too for a bit. And then all Just of a sudden, it haggling over draft picks more or less. Yeah, honestly, as a Bills fan and ASE's fan, I don't mind. Like, sure, it does make them tougher, but they also, in my opinion, gave up a lot for somebody that was pretty much dead set on retiring this year. So, best case scenario, he comes in. Plays one year, says, "Hey, I'm not doing this anymore." Yeah, but he, uh, but then they end up giving up the two first round picks and a second because there's the, 
Right now it's the first and two seconds. But the second second It'll depend on how many games he plays. It's conditional if he plays sixty five percent of the snaps. And he will. As long as he's healthy, he will. Yeah, I mean he turns forty December second, so do you really want to mortgage your future on that? I mean, probably sounds a lot better than Zach Wilson. Yeah. Under center. Or they have Mike a, White left too. So the thing don't is have I think other options. It's in in a way it's a smart decision on their end because they they have, have a, a lot of really good young talent who they're not going to be able to pay all of them. And they're all going to be coming up for extensions and contracts around the same time. They've done a really good job of drafting up there in the past couple of years. Yeah, Sauce Gardner's going to be the best corner in the league within a year or two, <laughs> yeah. if not close to it already. Yeah, so yeah, so they've done a really good job of drafting up there. This last draft showed, uh, again, just a lot of potential. And for as a football fan, I enjoy seeing it because it just it means more competition in the East. Um, I just don't like Aaron Rodgers. I think he's a bit of a prick. Um, but, you know. That's putting it nicely. Yeah. So, I haven't always felt that way. But it feels like the past few years, he's just become insufferable. Yeah. It seems like he's a lot more, like, outspoken about all these, like, dark retreats he goes on and whatever that just, is all about. hippy-dippy nonsense. It is definitely different. And he did seem much more likable a few years ago up until yeah. this these recent things have come out about him and him like being more outspoken about it too. Well, speaking about somebody else that I, for some reason have just found less likable over the years, we're moving to the NBA real quick. LeBron James, I fully respect his career and what he's done. I just find him obnoxious, but cool fact, um, with last night's game, LeBron actually had his first career 2020. So 20 points, 20 board game. First time in his career, he's been in the league for 20 years and has been a large body, super athletic dude that whole time. I know rebounds, he's never been really expected to be a big rebounder. He's always been more of a facilitator. Yeah, but I personally, this is kind of the way I saw his career going as he got older and how he could extend his longevity is by moving inside, playing, moving into playing a forward or center role in a bigger or in a smaller ball, small ball scheme. But with that being said, his first 2020 line, he has played a total of 1,693 games between the regular season and the postseason and these new playing games, and he is the oldest person to achieve that statistical mark since Wilt Chamberlain did it at 36 years old back in 1973. LeBron is 38 and did it for the first time. He's definitely aging gracefully. I mean, good for him. He's gonna be. He broke Kareem's scoring record recently, this right? Year, yeah. Earlier this season. Yeah. So he's just gonna keep growing on that. It seems like it's only a matter of time before he's playing with one of his sons, Bronny Jr. That's what he says he wants to do, and it looks like he's gonna be able to do so. Yeah, I think Bronny is what going to be a senior in high school this year, goes to play in college next year, and then two years from now he'll be in the NBA, hopefully, is the yeah. the plan. And I'm sure whatever team drafts him will then be getting LeBron James to their team as well, whether yeah. it's on hometown. I can't say hometown since he hasn't been playing there, but I guess if it's with the Lakers, hometown discount. Yeah. But on a very cheap contract, and given how he's played this year, there's no reason to think why he won't keep up the well, – the level of his play obviously can drop off a little bit, but he should still be a very productive player. LeBron will be able to play until whatever age he wants because nobody's ever going to tell him, no, we don't. There's always going to be somebody that will take him. He, I think he either needs to, when the time does come and he does start to fall off, which he's not even, he's really not there yet. When that time does come, I think he's going to need to really reflect on that and say, all right, maybe it's time to go. Like, and not prolong it like uh you know like Vince Carter maybe yeah because I think I say Vince Carter because he played what twenty two seasons more seasons in the NBA than anybody ever yeah he's up there he, all of a sudden next thing you see him on with like the Hawks and stuff yeah like, what are you doing just just let it go hang it up we yeah. get it you're a very good player 
probably more so because of his athleticism more than anything. Yeah. I don't remember Vince Carter being a great shooter by any means, but hopefully LeBron doesn't get to that point, like you're saying, and he just becomes, you know, when it's time to hang him up, just hang yeah. him up. I mean, he's th- like I said, he's 38 now. I don't see any reason he wouldn't be playing at 42, 43, 44 because he doesn't like he plays hard, but he takes such good care of his body and always keeps himself in great shape. There's no reason he couldn't keep playing. As long as the game doesn't somehow kind of outpace him, which it doesn't seem to be doing so far. Yeah, as long as he doesn't become like Tom Brady and next thing he was like 46, still trying to play in the league. Yeah, it just looks sad to watch. Yeah. I mean, Brady <laughs> was still okay this past year. Better but, than some, yeah. But don't get me wrong. There's a lot of times like the offense just wasn't doing anything all game long. And then in the fourth quarter, he puts up numbers because the team's down like 21 to 7 and he's just putting up garbage time stats. Yeah. I don't think LeBron will get to that point. He, he seems like he might be self-aware enough to retire when it comes time, but I guess we'll see. Michael didn't do it. He retired, what, two, three times, was it? Yeah. Early 90s with the Bulls, retired again late 90s, and then officially retired with the Wizards. Yep. Yeah, I think LeBron, it's a matter of he's just playing for the love of the game at this point. It's obviously not about money. The man's a billionaire. Yeah, he's it's, got enough off-the-court investments that he's doing fine. Yeah, he has the all-time scoring record. I think he may maybe. You know, who who knows? You could see them win a championship this year, and he says, you know, I'm going to go out on that note, but I doubt it because he has made multiple comments about wanting to play with his son. Maybe he hangs it up for a year or two and then comes back and plays with Bronny Jr. I don't yeah. know. That seems unlikely. A little, little Gordy Howe action. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you never know, but. Come back in your 50s and play with your kids. I think with LeBron, he'll keep playing. He'll keep just setting that scoring record further and further apart for anyone else to get to, and good luck catching it. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I mean, I think he'll want to, he's going to try to be the first person to get over 40,000 points because I believe the record is 38. Yeah, 38 and change. He's probably right around 38.5 maybe at this point. Yeah, let's see if I can find it here. And then, of course, his, season, his Wikipedia. 40,000 pretty easily. His Wikipedia page is longer than the Bible. All right, here we go. Um, total points. Doesn't have a total points. Let's do a basketball reference. So he's at 38,652. So he needs 2,500 points, 2,400 points to get to, or he needs to get to the, um, get to the 40,000 mark. That he should be able to get there pretty easily. I don't see why he doesn't. Yeah. You know, if he plays two more years, he'll get it because that's, over one season, that's 29 points a game, which he's, I mean, he's not at that nowadays, but I mean, he's still scoring. It's not like there's any lack of scoring for LeBron these days. Yeah, I don't see, I mean, unless he just goes absolutely off next year, averaging 30 points a game. Who am I kidding? He averaged 29 points a game this year, 28.9. Yeah, so I mean, it's not out of the <laughs> realm of possibilities, but yeah. maybe with a little more like load management next year and not playing as many games potentially, hopefully, you know, no major injuries kind yeah, of like Kobe had he, towards the end of his career with his Achilles. But yeah, LeBron hasn't no reason why he doesn't get to 40,000 late next year, early the following year. LeBron hasn't played more than 67 games uh, since 2017 and 2018 when he played all 82 with the Lake, uh, the Cavs. And then eight since 2018, 2019 with the Lakers, 55 games, 67, 45, 56 and 54. So, like, you know, it'll, it might take a little while, but I think he can get to 40,000. He does. I don't see any reason why he doesn't. He'll get there, like I said, either late next season, the 2023-2024 season, or sometime in the 2024-2025 year. He'll play until he gets there, but 
we have some some time to wait and see see what that happens. Tom, let's uh take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsors, and I'll come back with my story for the week. All right, love it. This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484-849-1015. And we are back. So you said you're up first tonight, Brian. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, it's been a few weeks since we uh, we got together. Sounds right, though. What do you got for me? Hit me. All right. So we're going back, back, back to. Don't tell me I didn't actually put the date down. Oh yeah, April twenty fourth, nineteen sixty two. Heading to the Midwest, Chicago, Illinois. Great city. I have not been there, but I will be there in August. Looking forward to getting out there. We're catching a Cubs and White Sox game over the weekend over there, going out with my family, celebrating my grandfather's 80th birthday. All the guys in the family getting together, my cousins, my uncles, my dad, my brother, and I, my brother-in-law. It's going to be a great time. So looking forward to that. That'll be awesome. I was in Chicago in the wintertime, and it was great. Toward Wrigley Field, so hopefully you can do something similar with the summertime. sure it'll be much more enjoyable weather as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I would love to see uh, an occasion like what I'm talking about today. Because like I said, April 24th, 1962, we're talking about Sandy Koufax tying the, at the time, MLE record with 18 strikeouts in a game. So, starting off, I lost track, said Sandy Koufax, when he asked if he knew how many batters he struck out. He said, I didn't know I tied the record until everybody came off the bench to shake my hand. On that day, April 24th, 1962, Sandy Koufax fanned 18 batters to equal Bob Feller's nine-inning record set in 1938, as well as matching his own personal best from three seasons earlier. So this was the second of the two times where Sandy Koufax struck out 18 batters. Yeah, I've heard this guy was pretty good. Yeah, he was all right, um, and his stats are even crazier. When you take into account the fact that he did retire early due to a plethora of arm issues, he had a lot of... A lot of health issues um, kicking around. We can talk, dive into that here in a minute. So he's he goes on to say that strikeouts are nice to have, particularly particularly in a jam, and they are going to come to a pitcher who throws hard. But I wouldn't trade a twenty game season for all the strikeout records in the books. He was he's here to win games. He didn't work, he wasn't didn't care to strike out people, but yeah, he came with the territory. So it sounded like as long as he got the win at the end of the day, that's what mattered most to him. That's all he wanted, yeah. So, coming into the game, skipper Walter Alston's fourth-place Dodgers were sitting at 8-5. and five. They were looking for some momentum when they ride in Chicago for a three-game set to conclude a 10-game road series. There's a road swing more than just the Cubs. The Cubs, who at 3-9 and nine are tied with the Milwaukee Brewers and better than only the winless expansion New York Mets, they seem like the perfect victim for the Dodgers and their... Uh, their momentum uh, shifter. I didn't realize how bad the Mets were to start their franchise. Oh, they were out. horrible. We could do a whole, especially because it'd be fun to just crap on the Mets all for an hour. But yeah, I'll pick on the Mets any day. Yeah, we could do a whole episode about how horrible that started. But, you know, I'm sure they could fire back with plenty of unflattering Phillies facts as well. Yeah, well, when you lead the, 
if you're the Phillies and you lead the MLB in most losses ever, I guess it's you're easy easy to pick on. Okay, well we're best first something. So the uh, Cubs, the North Siders, they were in the second campaign of club owner Philip K. Wrigley's bizarre experiment with the College of Coaches and its revolving head coach uh, position currently occupied by L. Tappy. So apparently they had a bunch of coaches um, going into that season and they employed a different head coach at different times in the season. Kind of reminds me of a few years back, at least a decade ago, the Sabres did this with their captain. They did an alt- revolving door of captains throughout the season. Every month was a new ha- new captain. Okay, I didn't. I don't remember that. I'm, I've seen yeah. some teams do like home captain, away captain, which and like same with the alternate guys. But either way, it's like just pick one. Right. right. All right. So coming into this, um, obviously, obviously, Sandy Koufax was known as being one of the hardest throwers in baseball history. Um, he was seven years deep into the league at this point, but he was not yet the consistently dominating pitcher who combined the power and control that you saw later on in his career. So sometimes uh, he was erratic, and sometimes he was unbeatable, according to the Pasadena Independent. So the 26-year-old Sandy Koufax at the time was sitting at a mediocre 54-53 record over parts of seven seasons, but at the time was averaging more than a strikeout an inning. So he w- this the southpaw, whom sports writer Frank Frank Finch of the Los Angeles Times lauded as the human strikeout machine, was coming off of a breakout season. In 1961, he had won 18 games, struck out an NL record 269 batters, and set another standard by fanning at least 10 batters in a game 11 times uh, to bring his career total to 31 10 strikeout games in his career at that point. That's over seven partial seasons. Hey, good for him. Yeah, right? Not too bad. So his success would be attributed attributed to the fact that he finally figured out his control, um, which up to this point was his most glaring weakness. Kind of reminds me of another hard-throwing lefty, Nolan Ryan. You mean righty? Righty. Yeah, you're right. I, th- I was just reading this about Kofax. He's the lefty. Hard-throwing righty and Nolan Ryan. Um, he was always dangerous, uh, but it wasn't until he figured out how to control that speed and danger that really his career really took off. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this on previous episode mm-hmm. with the Netflix uh, yes. documentary on Nolan Ryan. Yeah. Very cool. I didn't know he was that wild to begin his career, but until he figured out, he was actually with the, the Mets yeah. to start his career and then traveled on to the Angels, Rangers, and Astros. Yeah, he was a relief pitcher initially with the Mets. Kind of reminds me of Wild Thing Wilson from uh, the Major League Movies. I don't know Great. if you're going Wild Thing with uh, Mitch Williams. Oh the, no, the '90s Phillies teams. No, no, no. I don't have those same memories as you do, but I did watch the major league movies quite a few times. I don't either. I wasn't born yet. But. <laughs> so, um, it, but for figuring out his control, um, he actually took catcher Norm Sherry's recommendation, and he began throwing more changeups, which made his fastball seem even faster, and his nasty curveball even more devastating because it kind of, you know, obviously it offsets those other pitches. Sets guys up, has them thinking more and more about, hey, what's coming, what's coming. So, Kovex had emerged victorious in two of his first three starts in 1962, but seemed to suffer from fatigue late in games. I never pace myself, said Kovex about his approach. I pitch as strong as, as strong and as hard as I can. If I run, run into trouble, I know there are a few guys in the bullpen who come in, can come in and do the job. So, on this day, April 24th of 62, a crowd of only 8,938 patrons made its way to the intersection of Clark 
and Addison to take in an afternoon of baseball on a cold yet sunny Tuesday afternoon at Wrigley Field. After one inning, it looked as though it could be a long afternoon as um, as both clubs' hitters. Oh, could be a long afternoon for both clubs' hitters. Cubs right-hander Don Cardwell, who had posted a 15-14 and 14 record and by some modern metrics was the best pitcher in baseball in 1961, fanned two in a 1-2-3 inning while Koufax went on to strike out the side. Cardwell, who had lost all of his first three starts with a 7.62 ERA thus far in 1962, really started to come undone in the second. Hall of Famer Duke Snyder, the 35-year-old gray-haired former Brooklyn icon, led off with a walk, moved up on a wild pitch, and then scored on, a, on Tommy Davis's single. So that's a name that rings a bell for me, Duke Snyder. Duke Snyder, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, old Cardwell, though? No idea. No idea. Bro- yeah, Snyder, the Brooklyn Dodgers icon, um, Hall of Famer. Yeah, big name. After Johnny Roseboro stro- stroked a double that center fielder Lou Brock lost in the sun, Willie Davis' sacrifice fly gave the Dodgers a 2-0 lead. Another big name in Lou Brock. Yeah, one of the what all-time best base dealers ever. Yeah. Uh, so Koufax continued his pitching clinic in the next few innings. He fanned nine of the first ten batters he faced and had registered ten strikeouts by the end of the fourth inning. Ron Santo collected the Cubs' first safety, a fourth-inning double. Sandy's curve was a mar- was marvelous in the early innings, said all-star battery mate Roseboro. But as the shadows came along, we started going more with a fastball. Meanwhile, the Dodgers continued to whack Cardwell. After Wally Moon reached on a wind-aided single with two outs in the third, Snyder hit a liner that eluded right fielder Bob Will's shoestring attempt, and Moon scored. The Dodgers added another run in the fourth on Andy Carey's line drive round tripper to left field. Hit a big old dinger. It was his first as a Dodger after spending his first 10 seasons in the AL. L.A. Uh, blew the game up in the fifth inning when Tommy Davis, en route to leading the NL and RBIs with 153 that season, belted a three-run shot with Jim Gilliam and Moon on base via singles for a ins- seemingly insurmountable 7-0 lead. I imagine that being up like that gave Koufax some confidence and let him just go out there and start slinging it, as he seemed to already be doing. But really, I feel like at that point you can really dig in and just... It's like pin, like a edge rusher. You can just pin your ears back and go for it. Yeah, when you're up 21 nothing in the football game, yeah, right. like, let me just get after this guy. Same with... I mean, I've been there on the mound when that offense gives you that early lead it's just nice to just let it let it fire give them the fastball and let it rip just try and get some outs you're not generally you're not trying to punch guys out but in this case you know sandy was feeling quite the opposite sure yeah sandy did hit a bit of a bit of a bump in the fifth inning billy williams reached second when his deep fly fly bounced off center fielder willie davis's glove the play was generously ruled a double and not an error although probably should have been an error uh, Sandy went on to load the bases on walks to Will and Elder White, then fanned Mo Thacker and pinch hitter Andre Rogers. One pitch from escaping the jam. Koufax issued his third walk of the inning, walking Lou Brock, forcing Williams across the plate. He went on to say, I was afraid in the fifth that I might be starting, uh, starting to tire, and it was obvious that he was laboring and admitted that he started aiming the ball. That's the worst thing you want to hear from a pitcher, that they're aiming it instead right. of just throwing it. right. The Dodgers made it 8-1 in the 7th with to- when Tony Balsamo, who had relieved Cardwell to start the 6th, balked with the bases loaded. Big mistake. Uh, forcing Wills home. Tappy protested the ruling and was ejected, so the Cubs manager was gone. Sports writer Richard Dozier of the Chicago Tribune noticed, noted that Balsamo had Wills picked off at 3rd. However, first base umpire Stan Landis overruled the decision with his balk call. 
The Dodgers scoring explosion culminated in the ninth when Duke Snyder walloped a two-run homer after Moon had singled. So after his hiccup in the fifth inning, Koufax was much less overpowering in the next three frames, giving, giving up two singles, issuing a walk, and then striking out three. Slugger Billy Williams, who's 25 homers in 1961, won him the NL Rookie of the Year award, led off the final inning with a solo home run for the Cubs' second run of the game. It was a good pitch to left-hander strength, joked Koufax after the game. A high inside curve, and he hit it good. If I could take two pitches back, I'd take that one and the ball to Brock in the fifth. The Dodgers' bullpen remained silent in the ninth. It was the Brooklyn Natives' game to complete, so Sandy was going for it. So no doubt Alston knew that his prized southpaw still had a chance to tie his own record for the most strikeouts in a game. Koufax would then go on to punch out Will and White to raise his strikeout total to 17, to tie Dizzy Dean in 1933 and Art Mahaffey 1961 for the most strikeouts in a day game in the NL. Dizzy Dean, that's another name I'm familiar with, but Art something, I never heard Mahaffey, of that Mahaffey, not sure. I believe Dizzy Dean is another Hall of Famer. Uh, Thacker followed with, with what appeared to be a routine pop flight of first baseman Tim Harkness, who had replaced Moon to start the frame. Playing first for just the ninth time in his big league career, Harkness lost the ball in the swirling wind coming off Lake Michigan one mile to the east, and watched the ball drop in territory, territory just a few feet away from him for a single. Sandy unexpectedly had another shot at the record. To the plate stepped rookie Mo Moorhart, who had led the Class B Northwest League in hitting with a three thirty nine average pre, uh, the previous year. Seems like Mo didn't stand a chance. Not at all. Koufax struck him out looking to end the game in two hours and 41 minutes. Didn't need a pitch clock and still got it done efficiently. Hey, we can talk about the pitch clock another day. <laughs> As expected, uh, his teammates went nuts. They went congratulating Sandy, uh, who had given up six hits, w- walked four to go along with his 18 strikeouts. I wonder how many pitches he threw in that day. Probably would not have gotten to the ninth inning in today's baseball. So it was reported that he threw 144 pitches, including 96 for strikes. He would have been taking about 50 pitches ago. Yeah. So he's, <laughs> he said, I was trying to make them hit it, he said. I just wanted to get the game over. Um, so he seemed unconcerned by the number of pitches, uh, claiming that the total was not high for a fastball pitcher while he soaked his bulging swollen elbow in ice after the game. So that again, another reason his career came to, uh, came up a bit shorter than other pitchers. He really put his all into it and it, it really took a toll on his arm over the years. I'm sure modern technology and modern medicine would probably have been beneficial for oh, a guy yeah. like Sandy today. Yeah, but you got to deal with what you got when you're playing the game. Right, you can't, can't do anything about that now. Um, so his record-time performance quieted his detractors who had claimed that his 18 punch-outs in a complete game seven-hit victory over the Giants on August 31st of 1959 were the product of lousy lights and poor visibility at the L.A. Coliseum where the Dodgers played their home games from 58 through 61. So people said he got those strikeouts because of bad weather, which is stupid. Koufax himself actually scoffed at comparing the games, noting that there were more than 60,000 spectators in L.A. cheering for the Dodgers, while fewer than 9,000 fans had showed up at Wrigley Field. So, Yeah, a little more pressure pitching in front of your home crowd, too. Yeah, for sure. So his next start ended up being on April 28th, in which he suffered a career-threatening injury, not to his elbow or shoulder, but to his index finger against the Pirates. In his uh, bio project bio on Kofax, Sabre member Mark Z. Aaron writes how Kofax was hit by a pitch on his left index finger, causing a trauma that developed into Raynaud's phenomenon, a circulatory condition, causes lack of circulation in your ha- in your extremities. Kofax ended up playing through the numbness and even tossed his first of four no-hitters on June 30th, 
but the pain proved too intense. He ultimately landed on the DL in mid-July, ended up missing nine weeks. He returned in late September but and p- pitched ineffectively as the Dodgers lost to the Giants in a three-game playoff for the pennant. Koufax finished 14-7 and on the year, led the ER, NL in ERA, the 2.54 ERA, which would go on to be the first of his five consecutive seasons leading the ER, um, leading the league in ERA. So that is the story of Sandy Koufax and his 18 strikeouts. Obviously, his um, resume and his reputation goes way beyond just 18 strikeouts in, in the game and doing that twice. Um, he was the first pitcher to record 300 strikeouts three times. He In 1965, he set a major league record with 382 strikeouts, which was then broken by Nolan Ryan eight years later in 1973. Um, but the, his 382 remains the top mark for NL pitchers and lefties, which is kind of crazy when you think about some of the lefties that have been through the league. Like I, My first thought was Randy Johnson. Yeah, Randy, and then more familiar name these days Clayton Kershaw he's put up some high strikeout numbers but I don't think anyone's ever going to touch that three three yeah. two you said uh, 382 yeah so I don't think that one will be broken no. NL or AL in today's baseball no, seeing as he did it in 1965 so he did it 58 years ago um and it hasn't been hasn't been touched um he set a record with 97 games of at least 10 strikeouts which is again broken by Nolan Ryan um, he won the Cy Young in 63, 65, and 66 by unanimous votes. He won the tri- pitching triple crown um, th- in three years as well. Um, pitching triple crown, I believe, is wins. Let's see. Wins, strikeouts, and ERA. So he won that three times. Um, led the Dodgers to the pennant each year. He was the first three-time winner th- of the uh, Cy Young. And the only player to, pitcher to do so in a single award was given instead of one for each league. He was also named the NL Most Valuable Player in 1963 and was a runner-up for the award two other times. Um, four no-hitters. Um, became the eighth pitcher and first lefty to pitch a perfect game. Um, yeah, so he was just... He was un- unbelievable. Um, he's also not- he is also notable for being one of the outstanding Jewish athletes in American sports. He... Made the decision to not pitch game one of the 65 World Series because it fell on Yom Kippur. Um, and that was a big, big for the Jewish community to see, you know, one of their stars step up and, and do that. And obviously caused some derisiveness with the media. And yeah, I'm sure it didn't sit well with the team either. But yeah, so he pitched yeah, good for him for sticking up for himself and what he believes in. Right. He pitched 11 years. Um, from 55 to 66 with all with the Dodgers and he still sits seventh all time in major league history in strikeouts, um, with 2,396 career strikeouts ranks seventh all time trailing only Warren spawn among left-handed pitch left-handers, another hall of famer played a long time ago, 46 to 65. Um, he had 40 shutouts first pitcher in history to average more than one strikeout per inning. And I mean, he just, he was a first ballot Hall of Famer at 36 years old. Um, was elected in 1972, becoming the youngest player ever selected, ever elected. And he has worked for the Dodgers organization in a very variety of capacities since. And unlike many of the old folks we talk about on this show, um, Sandy Koufax is still alive, 87 years old. Um, oh, good for him. Still, good for Sandy. Still around and kicking. I I know when I we talk older baseball players, a lot of them are long gone, but. Yeah, he's still out and kicking. He serves as a member of the advisory board for the Baseball Assistance Team, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping former Major League, Minor League, and the remaining Negro League players through financial and medical difficulties. So, 
I feel like he's probably had some sort of role in the Dodgers organization lately yeah. too. Yeah, I don't, don't want to say like this past couple of years, but I feel like I've heard his name brought up in like assisting in some capacity. Yeah, probably. You know, probably. I'm not seeing anything specifically here. I know you know they hired him in 2013 as a special advisor to team chairman to work with pitchers during spring training. I mean, why he's, not learn from one of the one yeah, of the best? Yeah, right. Because obviously the game has changed quite a bit, but you know. In the end, it's still this at its core. Pitching is pitching, hitting's hitting. You know, if you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing. Yeah, I'm sure you can help with. I mean, I always struggle with throwing a curveball. Fastball changeup was my like bread and butter. Yeah, so I if, never never figured out a curveball. If I could have figured out like a better grip, obviously I never got to the major leagues or even the minor <laughs> leagues. But if I could have had someone like Sandy helping me out, you know, working with grips and pressure on where to put my finger on the laces instead, you know, I'm sure that's very helpful for those guys in that system and maybe a reason why the Dodgers have been so successful at developing all of their players and have been one of the better franchises over the past decade plus now. Yeah, those uh, sirens sound pretty close. Hopefully not coming here, are they, Brian? Uh, I don't think so. Sounds like they're far away in the distance at this point. Yeah, but they, uh, I heard, heard it come through the headphones that so picked up on here. But, yeah, that's the story of Sandy Koufax and his second 18 strikeout performance and Tom I'm curious to see where we are you taking us today so I'm going to go to the hardwood we're going to talk about the 1966-1967 Philadelphia 76ers and winning the NBA title on April 24th 1967 so when you talk about one of the best teams to ever step onto the NBA hardwood you have to bring up this Philadelphia 76ers squad more times than not people cannot forget or they can forget about this team, excuse me, because of how dominant the Boston Celtics were during this time period, and rightfully so. Celtics had just won eight straight NBA championships and go down as potentially the greatest dynasties in sports history. The Bill you said Russell, eight straight? Yeah, this was in the Jeez. middle of their, yeah. their big run there. I, did, I knew they had won a bunch of them. I don't realize it was that many in a row. So Bill Russell, obviously leading the Celtics, ends up winning 11 titles in total and were always the arch nemesis and rival to Wilt Chamberlain and the 76ers. So, like I just said, Wilt Chamberlain is the leading leading guy on the team here. This was his age 30 season, and he averaged 45 minutes a game, where a total of 45, 48 minutes are played in each contest. Wasn't the best statistical season as far as point scoring goes for Wilt. He averaged 24.1 per game, averaged actually 24.2 rebounds per game, averaged 68% from the field, which is pretty astounding. However, was only a 44% free throw shooter this year as he made it to the line about 10 times per game. I think that's something you touched on when you talked about his 100-point game, Brian, how he shot free throws very well that night but generally didn't beforehand. Was, yes, he was, typically was not, but the hitting his free throws got him to 100. So now to get past the Boston Celtics and the rest of the NBA, you don't just win with one player. And this year was different for the Sixers as they played more of a team game. You've heard of the spectacular seasons Wilt had where he averaged 50 points a game, scored 100 in a game, which, as we just mentioned, Brian, you've talked about and did a story on him before, but this time around Wilt had help and only allowed, and it actually allowed the Sixers to play more of a team game compared to everything running through Wilt and just hoping he can score enough points to beat the opponent. (laughs) Just throw him the ball and hope it goes in. And it usually did. I mean, like I said, he was averaging 68% per, 68% from the field. So more times than not, it was going in in the basket, and the other team had to go and score against them. So Will gets some help this year. He has Hal Greer and Billy Cunningham. They were a big part of the reason why this team played so well. These two guards open up a lot of space on the floor for Wilt, 
and were the beneficiaries of Wilt's new profound love for passing the ball. This season, Wilt actually averages 7.8 assists per game, mainly due to the fact that both Hal and Billy could shoot the ball so well from that like 10 to 15 foot range. As you can imagine, Wilt would demand a double, sometimes triple team, leaving those guys wide open, and they would continuously knock down those shots throughout the game. Hal himself almost matched Wilt on a per-game basis when it came to scoring, putting up about 22 points a night, while Billy contributed 18.5 throughout the season. Now with this offense, it was very hard to stop the Sixers that year. They averaged a league-high 125.2 points per game, and they were actually one of the best defensive teams as well. They gave up only 115.8 points per game, which ranked third in the league. Having a differential of about 10 is a great recipe for success, and no wonder this team was so good. So to start the season off, the 76ers go on an 11-2 run over the first 13 games, with their only two losses coming to the Cincinnati Royals and the other against those Boston Celtics. Cincinnati Royals, they had Oscar Robinson, one of the all-time greats who played for the played for them, and Bill Russell, and those incredibly tough Celtics. So after their second loss of the year, which came to the Royals, the Sixers ripped off 11 straight wins before falling to those Celtics again. Now the most points scored over that 11-game win streak was 138 against the LA Lakers, where they achieved a victory of 138-130. to And then, to point out the great defense as well, the least amount of points given up during that span was a 103 as they beat the Chicago Bulls by 107 to 103 that night. So following the loss, the Celtics on December 11th, the Sixers ended up ripping off another 11-game win streak before this one is ended by the New York Knicks on the road, where the Sixers fell by a score of 112 to 104. Up next, another nine wins in a row before falling to the Boston Celtics again, this time at home by a score of 118 to 106. To cap off a five-game homestand, the Sixers welcomed in the Cincinnati Royals, where they ended up defeating them 110-107 before going on a three-game road trip to face the St. Louis Hawks, which I don't know about you, Brian, but I did not know that was an actual basketball team before researching this. Were you What's aware of the St. Louis Hawks? Yeah, yeah. There was one of the... I've always been fascinated by the way that professional sports franchises have bounced around. I mean, like speaking of another one, Atlanta. The Flames were not always in Calgary. They were in Atlanta. And I believe they might have actually been somewhere else before that. But yeah, the Atlanta Flames were a big <laughs> thing for a while. I've always been fascinated by the movement of teams and the history behind those things. Yeah, and I feel like it's a lot more prevalent in NHL for some reason. I don't know about the NBA, but if, like you just mentioned, Atlanta. They had the Atlanta Thrashers, goes to Winnipeg, but it was Winnipeg before. And then it got, like, came to Atlanta, back to Winnipeg. A couple teams around like that, so... On this road trip, they faced the St. Louis Hawks, the LA Lakers, and the San Francisco Warriors, and this was actually their longest losing streak of the season as they did not win one game on that three-game road trip out west. So before this three-game losing streak, the team had gone 47-5 and to start the year. Ultimately, they finished with a record of 68-13, and which at the time was the greatest regular season win-loss record, which ended up eventually being passed by the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, and more recently, the Golden State Warriors when they went 73-9. and Because it helps when you have Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green. Yeah, that team was just a different level of filthy. And I'm sure, I guess you can definitely put two of them in the Hall of Fame. In Steph Curry and KD. KD. I don't know if Klay or Draymond gets there. Yeah, that'll be an interesting conversation when the time comes. Because, I mean, Draymond has never been like the biggest scorer, but he's been very crucial to those teams. 
And Rings Talkal finished with what five or six yeah, but you know many they have at this point. This is a debate. This is a conversation we could have in depth. Is when when is the Hall of Fame the Hall of Fame, and when is it just like the Hall of Very Good? You know, it should always be the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Very Good. Yeah, which I mean, like baseball. Fred McGriff just got in, and you know he he was a really good player, but was he Hall of Fame? I don't know. Especially, I mean, unfortunately, the steroid topic comes up, and it's like, do you want to keep out? Guys who should be in there, whether steroids or not, with like Barry Bonds, Roger, Roger Clemens. Clemens. Those are really the two big ones for me when I think of the steroid era. Like who should who should be in the hall? I mean, I guess you could go Mark McGuire. I don't know if I would go Sammy Sosa. I feel like the steroids really helped Sammy out a lot. He wasn't very relevant. But I also that. don't think that either of them had the longevity of. I only think of Mark because of. His days with the athletics. Yeah. I don't really remember Sammy before coming to the Cubs. He was what with the Texas Rangers. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. But it's like Barry Bonds was going to be a Hall of Fame player before he came to the Giants and was doing steroids. Was accused of steroids. It's yeah. never been yeah, he's never, never been proven, been proven. Never been proven true. His head and body may have swollen up, but so is mine with age. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm not gonna argue that and say, that makes two of us. I'm definitely not on steroids. Yeah, I can't say I am either. That's just what happens when you drink beer and talk sports. Yeah, fathead syndrome. Now, the Sixers, they faced the Celtics nine times throughout the course of the regular season, and their record against them this year was 4-5. and five. So not great, but not awful either. So it kind of gives you hope heading into the playoffs. As a matchup with them was all but inevitable, given that there were only 10 teams in the league at this point, five in the Eastern Conference, five in the Western Conference. Now, first up for the Sixers was a matchup with the Cincinnati Royals. The Sixers were the favorite as the one seed, but didn't get off to the type of start you would want in a best-of-five series. They ended up losing Game 1 by a score of 120-116. to 116. Now, thankfully for them, Game 2 was the next night, and Wilt and his Sixers were able to pull out an impressive victory by a score of 123-102, to 102, and even the series at 1. Game 3 wasn't much closer as the Sixers win another one, Another easy one, I should say, 121-106 to 106 before closing out the series against Oscar Robertson and his Royals in Game 4 with a final score of 112-94. to 94. So overall, they kind of get past these Cincinnati Royals pretty easily. Now, I don't know where the Cincinnati Royals went. Do you, Brian? Uh, they are the Sacramento Kings. Okay, good for you. They were, it makes sense. They were the Rochester Royals initially, actually. So they were... Okay. In Ro- I mean, they many, many, many moons ago. But yeah, Cincinnati... They went on to become the Kings. Makes sense. Royals, Kings kind of transitions pretty yep. pretty easily. Yeah. Now, what lies ahead for the Sixers was a matchup with their rival in the Boston Celtics. Boston was the two seed and faced off with the three seed in the New York Knicks in round one. They handled them fairly easily as well, winning their series three to one. So I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm not really a fan of the best of five series in any sport. Baseball does the same thing for their divisional round. But I'm fine with it in the early playoffs. Like I don't mind for like a wild card round or something, but yeah, wild card round like best of like one and get in or like best of three. But when you're doing like divisional conference finals and then like finals, I feel like it should all be the same across the board. Best yeah, of seven. That's fair. Now, if you like chaos or something, you want more like unpredictability in this playoff. Sure, give me give you the best of five series. But to me, why not just make it equal across the board? It's not the NFL. We're just doing one game each time. Yeah, best of seven to me is what makes sense. Give me the best of eleven. Yeah, hey, whatever. Best of what? <laughs> First of twenty-one wins. Like we can go that route if you want to get real crazy. You pick your best, your best two guys, and it's two on two to determine the championship. 
Good luck beating Wilton, whoever he's got with him. Yeah, right. So, what was considered the actual finals between the Sixers and Celtics didn't turn out to be that much of a series at all. So, the Sixers, they get out to an early one nothing lead in the series after getting past the Celtics by a score of 127-113. to 113. This was a sign of things to come and had to be such a relief for a team that couldn't get past Boston for many seasons prior. Game 2 was no different and the Sixers won again, but this time in a much closer affair, edging out a win of 107-102. to 102. So Game 3 was another one that went the way of Philly, pulling out a 115-104 victory against those pesky Celtics. So now with a stranglehold on the series, the Sixers head to Boston for Game 4 to try and close out the series and advance to the NBA championship. Unfortunately, Game 4 was not to be as the Celtics weren't done yet as they won a close one 121-117. This was the Celtics' last hurrah though in the series and closest game in their best of seven against the Sixers. Back to Philly for Game 5 where the Sixers blow the doors off the Celtics and win easily 140-116. At last, the Sixers can finally look past the Celtics and get their chance at a title, which would only be fitting for how this team has played throughout the course of the regular season. I knew the six the Celtics had that dynasty. I did not realize that it was the Sixers that like put the brakes on it. Yeah, this team had a lot of Hall of Famers. Um, so obviously, Wilt gets there, Hal Greer gets there, Billy Cunningham gets there, and Chet Walker does as well. Sure. So that's four, and then I don't know if there's a fifth or not. I had no clue who Billy Cunningham was. I've seen his name in the rafters at. Wells Fargo. Yeah, he's a bit of a folklore around here in Philly. But I didn't know who he was until I le- learned of him through NBA 2K22, I want to say, or 21. I was big into their ultimate team, and he was like the grand prize for this one thing. And I happened to win him, and that I was like, who is Because it was kind of, like, kind of underwhelming for a grand prize. Like, who the hell is Billy Cunningham? But he was an awesome card in the game, and then I learned more, a bit more about him at that point, but... Just shows I don't my baseball history knowledge is definitely better than my basketball. Yeah, so it was four. So it was um, Wilt Chamberlain, Hal Greer, Billy Cunningham, and Chet Walker. And I'll touch on them a bit here as we get into the finals against the San Francisco Warriors. So let's see with the San Francisco Warriors. Um, well, before we get into the finals here, one thing I didn't know about the playoff format at the time was Game One was always at the higher seed stadium. And then game two, you would travel to the lower seeds home court and it rotated each game throughout the series. So Interesting. I did not know that. That's not something that makes much sense to me. And it also just never really gives like a team any momentum per se because your crowd can't carry it over from like game one to game two. Now the NBA championship, different story though. Sixers had a date with San Francisco Warriors in the finals. Games one and two were in Philly, three and four San Fran. Then it would rotate for games five, six, and seven kind of like what more we are more accustomed to today and dependent on if those games are needed game five and seven in philly game six in san fran so game one ready to go here becomes a bit of a nail biter this is the only game of the series that goes to overtime and the sixers pull out a 141 to 135 victory over the warriors now one would think if the sixers put up 141 points then wilt must have had at least 40 or more not the case in this one, as Wood only scored 16 points. Wasn't this a year that he like averaged a ridiculous amount of points, too? No, he only averaged 24 this year. Well, 24 points and 24 boards. Huh. He played 45 minutes a game. That's wild. Huh. 
So with that said, only scoring 16 points, he pulls down an incredible 33 rebounds in this one and then dished out 10 assists en route to a triple-double. The leading scorer on the night for the Sixers was Hal Greer as he poured in 32 from the field. Wally Jones added 30 of his own, Chet Walker contributed 23, and then Billy Cunningham added another 26. So the Sixers escaped game one on their home court, again 141-135. to 135. So game two, a much easier win for Philly as they blow out the Warriors by a score of 126-95. to 95. On the plane and across the country to San Fran, we go for games three and four. Now like any champion, they must face some adversity and nothing is ever given to you. The Warriors win Game 3 by a score of 130-124, to 124, led by Rick Barry going for 55 points in Game 3. Rick Barry for 55? Yeah, he went for 55 that Sheesh. night. And then his teammate Jim King contributed 28, and then Nate Thurman adds in 17. The Sixers were no match for the Warriors on this night, but it, they didn't let that get to them, thankfully. So Game 4, the Sixers retake control of the series and take a commanding three games to one series lead. The Sixers win a rather easy one, pulling out a victory by 122-108. to Another great game from Hal Greer as he finished with 38 points, and Chet Walker added another 30 himself. One could say this was an off game from Wilt as he only finished with 10 points, but again, he controlled the glass coming down on 27 boards and dished out 8 dimes. Rick Barry did all he could as he added in another 43 points himself, but it wasn't enough as the Sixers claimed control of the series lead rather convincingly. Game 5 coming back to Philly, and in an ideal world, the Sixers would have won the title on this April night. Unfortunately for them, that wasn't meant to be, as the Warriors played spoiler to the inevitable though, beating the Sixers on their home court 117-109. Thanks to another impressive effort from Rick Barry, he dropped another big game on the Sixers, this time finishing with 36. This was an all-around team effort though from the Warriors as five other members of the team all finished with 13 points or more. Chet Walker, he led the Sixers with a team-high 25. Wolk got to 20, but it wasn't enough as the Sixers still ended up falling on this night, which went, which meant one more trip across the country to try and win the title. So Game 6, April 24th, 1967. A night the Sixers win the title, and what had to be an awesome game because they win by a score of 125-122 to 122 and clinch that championship they had been dreaming of. Wilt was right in line with the season averages, scores 24 points, grabs 23 boards, had four assists. He also played every single minute of the 48-minute contest that night. So needless to say, Wilt wanted this one, and he wanted it pretty bad. Now Luke Jackson, a name I've never heard of before and hadn't mentioned earlier either, played a big role in this game, grabbing almost as many rebounds as Wilt as he had 21 boards and chipped in with 13 points. So those are the types of performances that get you over the hump and capture that elusive title. Wally Jones had 27 on the night, Chet Walker had 20, Billy Cunningham had 17, and kind of the guy who's, I don't want to say carried them throughout the playoffs, but Hal Greer, he definitely stepped up when it mattered most, only had 15 that night. But just goes to show it was a total team effort, and the difference in the Sixers winning this game, and ultimately capping off one of the best seasons in NBA history. Now, Brian, one stat I found that really stood out to me was how many fouls Wilt Chamberlain averaged per game this season. For someone who is seven foot one, you would think it's a big number. So what's your guess on the amount of fouls averaged honestly, by Wilt? Honestly, I don't think it was that much. And the reason I say that is because he was so tall and lanky that he probably didn't need to reach a ton. 
Probably wasn't swatting at guys. He said, how, so how many games do I think he fouled out? No, just how many fouls did he average fouls per, per game? game? I'm going to say 2.3. Yeah, I mean, you're right there. 1.8 was the correct right. number. Yeah, so my, my thought behind that is this. I played a lot of basketball growing up. I played travel. I played AAU. I played CYO. I played, I played varsity, all that fun stuff. I never once fouled out of a game. I think the most fouls I probably ever had was four. But that's just because I did exactly what every coach tells you to do. Go straight up. I'm not out jumping you. There's no point in me smacking at you. Just get my hand, get in your face. And uh, seven foot one is exactly like that's my mindset is just put your hands up and you're 10 feet tall. Like you don't got to do a whole lot at that point. you know. Yeah, no, I mean, at least I don't know about you, Brian, but I didn't play against a whole bunch of guys, at least in like the CYO ball that were much taller than I am. I'm just under six four, so it's not like I was facing six foot eight, six foot ten guys that playing like I played a seven footer. That was wild. Yeah, I never I think the tallest guy I played against was maybe like six foot seven. That was just one game and that was obviously intimidating, but didn't work out well for me, and that's why I'm here talking sports and not in <laughs> college basketball well, yeah. or the NBA. I guess for those of you, I guess if anyone's listening to this that doesn't know who Tom or I are, Tom is the taller of the two, not by a whole lot. I'm about a solid six two. Tom is probably closer to six three, almost six four. Definitely six three, almost six four. Um, so yeah, I played a seven footer. Yeah, he didn't have to do a whole lot. You're not no need to steal the ball. You just stand there, put your hands up. Yeah, and even when we stand up and put our hands up, he just goes up and over us and yeah. shoots it with ease. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a reality check and a makes you not want to play the game anymore. It's just like a sad feeling. Yeah, dude. Especially I've only been in the presence of a seven foot tall human being a few times in my life. The most recent one, I think I've told you this story. I was in the Wawa uh, right between Gay and Market Street in Westchester. And I'm, I walk in, and there's this dude over by the coffee. And I'm like, hey, he looks pretty big. He must be on a chair or something. And that's where I was going anyway, so I go make my coffee. And no, this kid is just huge, huge. So he's got an EYBL jacket on. And if you know anything about travel basketball, EYBL is a very high-end tra- AAU travel circuit. I don't think it's AAU, it's a, but it's a high-end travel circuit. Odds are if you're playing on that, you're probably pretty good. You're getting recru- recruited. So I get to talking to him. He's a really nice kid. And I said, hey, so I see your jacket. I was like, you, you obviously ball. You're tall. Got any offers or anything? You, you playing in college? He goes, yeah, I got a few. I was like, oh, like what? He said, well, the most recent one was North Carolina. And immediately, obviously, if you know anything about college basketball, there's your alarm bells are going off. Like, wait, hold on. Going to UNC? That's a blue, that's a blue blood school. So I get to t- I keep talking and it turns out kid's name is Derek Lively. Um just capped off a good season with Duke. A very good season at Duke. He at the time was like a ranked prospect, a four or maybe five star prospect. By the time the end of his senior year came around, he was the number one prospect in the country. So like that was pretty cool. He was playing at the West Town School here outside of Westchester. Um super nice kid. I've never really been a big Duke fan, but I'm really hoping to see him go on and do really great things. He was super humble. He could have just told me to shove it. Like, he didn't have to talk to me, but he had a full, we had a really nice conversation. Seems like a super cool kid. Yeah, it's good to see he has that type of, like, he seemed very humble. Perspective at 17 or 18 whenever you talked to him. Yeah, he seemed very humble. He could have, yeah, he probably would have been a junior in high school when I, when I met him. So and maybe he was already 16. 6'11, six, six, 7 feet tall. Super humble. Um, he very well could have, like I said, could have just told me to shove it or just ignored me entirely, like, too cool for school, but not at all. Super cool dude. Uh, but yeah, seven foot, like I have tall cousins, six, five, six, six, and they're freakishly tall. Shout out to you guys. I know you're listening at some point. 
Um, but like, yeah, seven foot's older from beast. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm not playing basketball anywhere. Wish I could have, but six foot four big men don't really make it past division yeah, three six, basketball. Six golf and bowling. They're yeah. probably more suited for, for, for you. Probably. Oh, and, and I have me, a better but, chance. Yeah, I'd say so, but. All right, Tom, anything else you want to add before we uh, we wrap it up here today? No, just uh, Wilt, he actually won the regular season MVP that uh, award that year. That's really all I got about that 1966-1967 Sixers team win the championship on April 24th of 1967, and they go down as one of the best teams who ever step on the NBA court. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Four Hall of Famers in a lineup is never a bad thing. <laughs> no, you'll never go wrong with that. I'm yeah. sure you're going to do pretty well. Yeah, I'm not sure we'll see that much again, but yeah, that's very cool. I did not know any of that. There's a lot of the stories we've talked about. I feel like I've had some some knowledge of beforehand, not from you telling me, but just having known it. Right, this one is totally well yeah, totally brand new. I um, fascinating. Yeah, really, really love to hear it. And Tom, it's great getting back in the, the studio here with you. It's been a, a few weeks. I know that you know, largely my fault. My life is very hectic these days. Hey, all good. We're working around it, and we're going to start putting out some more content. Yes. content for you guys. So. so we're back. Those of you that have been listening along, we really do appreciate it. We are back. You, you should start seeing regular. Um, drops we do have a couple episodes that we recorded but and then my computer that we edited on broke down so i probably will still release those anyway because there's some good fun fun interesting content i think we had some really good stories that went on in that our baseball preview which i'm still gonna drop it but yeah, definitely. a couple weeks in you know you never know what it's gonna be but make us look silly already or make it look <laughs> make us look really good yeah no i'm an idiot when i uh, made my my one pick in the uh cy young sleeper didn't realize the dude was out for half the year. <laughs> Who was your sleeper? I forget. Uh, Tristan McKenzie. Ah, uh, right, Tristan. Yeah. Hopefully he comes back soon, though. Dude, uh, a lot of, not, not a lot of potential. Like I like his upside. Not looking like it. Sorry, guys. Tom just hit puberty here. It must mean it's time to go. Yeah, I'm 13. Sorry. <laughs> 13 going on 30, literally. <laughs> but yes, follow us on all of our uh, social medias at Going Back Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and we keep talking about YouTube. We'll get it up there at some point. We're not recording video footage yet, but on the agenda it's getting there it's getting there i just got one thing at a time but yeah we appreciate you listening and we uh tom you want to take us out yeah i got a yogiism for you tonight brian i love a good yogiism when there's a fork in the road take it <laughs> that's pretty good all right thanks for checking us out again this week we'll see you next week at going back back back